conquer is never fun, and defeat is seldom something we take delight in. There are two stories that come to mind when I think of failure. Growing up, I always enjoyed school. It came naturally. It was a game of sorts to me. And very quickly, it became more about getting things right than actually learning. And this vice came out in public when I was given a certain assignment in my freshman year of college. The assignment during my very first ministry class at KCU was to interview students and student ministry workers of different age ranges. And so now I was new to the area and I had very little connection with any local ministries. This assignment was going to require me to get out of my comfort zone and begin new connections. At that time, that's not something that I was comfortable doing. However, I wasn't really interested in learning either. I just wanted the grade to move on to my next class, to my next assignment. So I fabricated answers that I thought my student ministry professor wanted to hear for those interviews and subsequently turned in the assignment. After turning in the assignment, I was caught. I had to fess up to what I had done. And because apparently I wasn't as skilled as I thought, I genuinely repented, began to recognize what I had done wrong, and he asked me to redo the assignment, though I still received a failing grade. I missed the point of the assignment, an opportunity for growth. I was asked to own my failure, and I was better off for it. Now contrast that with a different experience. I grew up on a hill. My grandparents had a hill. And so in the wintertime in Ohio, when the snow would come, everybody else would go sledding. They love sledding. I, on the other hand, love to snowboard. My very last time snowboarding was a massive failure. I was at my grandparents' house. I had built this huge snow ramp. I had talked all kinds of trash to my cousins about how much air I was going to get and you know how big and bad I was as a 12-year-old boy. So, of course, when my cousin then brought one of her friends, I had to show off for her because I was all big and bad and cool. And so they're all around getting ready to watch me go down this hill, get ready to go on this ramp to get some big air. And I jump up on my snowboard. I start to go down and I get about two feet and then I fall and then I tumble and then tumble becomes into a roll and I just keep going and then finally I sit up and they're just laughing at me and I was humiliated because I was trying to show off for this girl and so what did I do being embarrassed having my cousins laugh and taunt me and of course I didn't hear the end of it for weeks and the fact that big bad 12 year old Kyle had flopped I take my board and I go inside I'm done. Since that event, I have not snowboarded. And I used to love snowboarding, but that memory of failure of that failure has really precluded me from ever going again. I didn't want to fall in front of people and be made fun of for it. Of course, I'm confronted with this when a good friend texts me earlier in the week and says, hey, I want, I want to go snowboarding. Would you want to try it out? with me and he has no idea of this story so at that moment the barrage of emotions reflooded my mind 
well, I don't have any of my snow stuff. It's all in Ohio. I'm sure he doesn't really want me to go. You know, those excuses just kind of started rolling in my mind. Yes, I'm human. Those things filter through my head. Because of instead of being better for my experience and learning from my failure and from my flop, I'm still hurt and bitter. Failure is never fun, and defeat is seldom something we take delight in. Just like maybe my stories that you have stories of your own that are painful, embarrassing, humiliating. And a response to those stories, to those encounters, to those flops and those failures, they can be life-changing. Failure can make us bitter or it may make us better. It's all about switching those letters. We can take it as instructive and corrective and learn from it. Failure may show us, obviously, I need to work harder to succeed, or as I move ahead, I may need help. And the fact that I can't do this by myself. So it can either make us bitter or better. The great untruth that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker when we insulate ourselves from the unknown or the uncertainty by cultivating environments that are totally safe and comfortable, that we never have the potential failure, we buy into that great untruth. Because we think of a, a failure or a flaw that we need to then distance ourselves from that experience. But our inability to accept that failure is a part of life that creates barriers of unbelief and God. The disciples are about to learn the depths of this truth in our story in Mark today. Mark describes a story where the disciples' failure to recognize their need for God causes harm. And back-to-back weeks, our teaching text comes after an incredible spiritual moment, meaning a truth is revealed and then provides the opportunity for growth. Jesus coming off the mountain where he's revealed himself to three disciples. They encounter then a chaotic scene as they descend that mountain. And Jesus asks this group as he, as he walks into the scene, what are you arguing about? And we learn that a father pipes up and shares about how he brought his son to Jesus because of an unclean spirit. And instead of finding Jesus, he only finds a few of Jesus' disciples. The disciples were unable to get rid of the demon that plagued that poor child. And so into the chaos... Jesus and these three disciples, after they come down the mountain, step. And they see this and experience this. And the Father had appealed to the disciples to exercise the power known to belong to Jesus because the principle basic to discipleship, to discovery of who we are in Jesus, was that the messenger of a man is as if the man is himself. The messenger of a man is as the man himself. In Jesus' absence, the disciples stood in his place and regarded as he is. It was therefore legitimate to expect that the, they possessed the power of their master. For their part, the disciples had good reason to believe that they could cast out the demon because they had been commissioned to do so before. And they had been successful. The disciples think because they have seen and said that they are fluent in how God's power is used. The fact that they have seen Jesus and who he really is, and they have said that, those words out of their mouth, that they think they have fluency in the way of Jesus. And so there's a disconnect in the knowledge of who Jesus is and its application in this chaotic scene. Have you ever traveled to a place where the people didn't speak 
your native tongue. In the summer of 2011, I traveled to Kenya to dig wells. And my first day, I got myself in trouble. So we land in Nairobi after this long flight. And I meet the missionary, hop on a little prop plane, and take about an hour and a half to two-hour flight north to Turkana, Kenya. We hop then into the Jeep, and we start heading to the missionary compound. We learn that we're going to learn language for a set period of time, and then we will find out what's next. So we spend about 30 minutes learning the Turkana language. We learn, hi, my name is, I am from America, what is your name, and how are you? And so I learned a joke, a joke noi. And I would say, Kyle, I forget how to say America, so clearly I, I don't remember that. But, but we would practice it for about 30 minutes, and we'd just say it. And I got really good at saying it then, I've, since in the recesses of my mind, except for that initial greeting. And then the missionary says, all right, time to go. And so he takes my teammate and I, and he drops us each off at a different mud hut. And before we know it, or at least before I knew it, I'm completely surrounded by kids and adults asking me all kinds of questions in the Turkana language. The only thing I know how to say is, hello, my name is Kyle, I am from America, and I would just keep repeating those phrases, those five phrases that, that I, would, I would know. I would soon quickly learn when a mother grabs her daughter and starts yelling in my face in a language that I can't understand that I had gotten myself into trouble because the translator quickly walks over the hill after being there for what seemed like an eternity. And he starts to translate, and he asks some questions, and he said, Amoru, which was my name in Turkana, you have agreed to take this little girl back to America and raise her. And I was like, wait, all I knew how to say was, hello, my name is, and I am from America. And somehow I had mixed up enough words because I just kept saying the same things, and I thought I was good enough to try off some other things with my little dictionary that I could have full-fledged conversations. Thankfully, Sammy helped me get out of that situation, but unfortunately, that wasn't the only time that I almost, what I would learn was I almost got married that summer. It took a failure to remind myself in that chaotic situation that I wasn't fluent. The disciples weren't fluent in the way of Jesus, at least not yet. You gain fluency in a language when you move from merely translating an unfamiliar language into a familiar one to interpreting all of life through that new language. It happens when you can think, feel, and speak in a language. In a sense, the new language becomes the filter through which you perceive the world and help others perceive your world and theirs. Where your internal monologue is in a different language, where you're not going through the, the mechanics of taking the English word and translating it to Turkana and then trying to figure out what you want to say in response and then having to then go back and put it in a Turkana language as in my story. Because what happens is when you are unfamiliar and not fluent with the language and you continually have to go through the mechanics of it, sometimes you will misstep and misspeak. Jeff Vanderselt says this, that gospel-fluent people think, feel, and perceive everything in light of what has been accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's a difference between gospel-fluent people and gospel-flippant people. 
those who fail to believe in every area of their life, and more on this in a moment, are exhausting. And so Jesus let them know this by his response. And he says, hey, you're an unbelieving generation. As you looked for the Messiah, as you looked for the promises of who God has said you are and what that means for all of life, you're flippant about it. And so gospel flippant is the ability to utter certain words or phrases that sound right or produce certain actions that look right. And both come from pride because you think you have the skill and the knowledge to be able to do it, whereas gospel fluency is not dependent on self, but it's dependent on the Spirit, where we're constantly going back to Jesus and who he is and what he has done for us and allowing that to not just shape our perspective, but our actions and the way in which we see the world. And so when we're gospel flippant, we say, I think I know enough so I'm good, because it sounds right, but there's no depth. And what we find is when there's no depth and we're flippant instead of fluent, we're constantly having to go through the mental gymnastics, the mechanics of trying to translate things, and the goal for Jesus that Jesus wants for us in our lives is to not be gospel flippant, where we can just say certain things that sound right, but ultimately that we are gospel fluent. The way in which we interact with the world constantly points out to others who he is and what he is doing and what he has done. And so Jesus calls out the crowd and the disciples and say, you're an unbelieving generation because you don't believe that you need me. So if the disciples got it wrong, did anyone in this story get it right? Yes, the father did. And so Jesus begins a conversation with this boy's father who he walks into the chaotic scene with and asks a question. The question allows the father to tell his story that the boy has been afflicted since childhood with near fatal effect. But it also allows the father to declare his heart. The question of Jesus invites the father to come to him as a total person with hard facts and with human hopes. Isn't the beauty of Jesus so sweet, that he allows us to come to him with the total of who we are. And so the father's distress is well expressed in the desperate cry, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. At the same time, though, his words contain a concealed accusation against the powerlessness of the disciples, which has led him to doubt Jesus' ability to offer real assistance to his son. See, the, act, the disciples' actions were not in a vacuum and have an effect on others, and it has an effect on this father because he sees the powerlessness of the disciples, and he wonders, well, then can Jesus truly act? See, when we speak gospel flippant versus being gospel fluent, we are either giving answers to questions that people are not asking for, or we are speaking a language that none of us really understand all that well. And gospel fluency can always be understood and perceived by others, and so can gospel being gospel flippantly. Whether we're gospel fluent or gospel flippant, as people observe that, they're going to interpret how they perceive and interact with Jesus through that. And so Jesus hears the man's question through his response. And he says, if you can, 
Everything is possible for the one who believes, the person who is resting on God's strength, not their own. That's what he means by believes. He's a, it's the person who's resting on God's strength and not their own. Jesus recognizes the man doubts and responds to him. And so for some, the father's statement in response to Jesus may seem odd. The father responds, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And so this may seem like an odd statement for some who have been following Jesus for a very long time, but the truth of the matter is that we are all unbelievers at times. None of us have given all areas of our lives over to Jesus. We still have places in our lives where we don't believe God. There are spaces where we don't trust his word and don't believe what he has accomplished in Jesus is enough to deal with that past story of failure. What we are facing with in the moment or even in the next. And so the father's response indicates that he understands Jesus' words in this light for he immediately relates this declaration concerning faith to himself. His cry expresses humanity and distress at being asked to manifest faith. I do believe. Help my unbelief. So at the same time he affirms his faith, he associates himself with the rebuke addressed to the disciples. This generation is always unbelieving. You are an unbeliever at times and at spaces in your life when you don't truly trust God and what he says about that circumstance or situation. And so the ambivalence of his confession is a natural expression of anxiety and the earnest desire to see his son released. We want God to work. And we begin to faithfully engage with Jesus when we are honest about our unbelief. The exchange between Jesus who displays his fluency by asking the right questions, and the Father established the personal relationship necessary for the accomplishment of the Son's healing. See, for many of us, we'd rather fake a Christian life than actually live one. We pretend like there are no areas of unbelief present in our lives, and to live a Christian life means we get comfortable with the unknown, with failure, and with our own flaws. We get comfortable with saying, I do believe. I want to believe. Help my unbelief. And for some of you, your heart, your belief is not placed in Jesus. For some of you, your heart is based in your career and you masquerade it in Christian language. For some of you, your heart is steeped in politics or your next vacation or your kids and you masquerade it in Christian language. You, you say things that sound good, that sound religious, but are ultimately void of power because it's the dependence upon you and what you can control. And you know where your heart is because when you experience failure in that area, instead of getting better, you get bitter. To get better means being honest about both our belief and unbelief. And so when Jesus says everything is possible for the one who believes, he's communicating that trust in him should not be controlled by circumstances, that true belief is not trusting in one's own self-reliance. Pastor Andy Stanley has a new book out, and included with it are five questions about making decisions. And the first question goes directly to one's integrity, being honest about self. The question is, are you being honest with yourself, really? You know what you've told everyone else? 
You know what you've told yourself? But come on. When it's just you, ask yourself, why am I doing this, really? Imagine going into a retail outlet and a salesperson saying out loud to you the things that you say to yourself in your head. You would be so offended. Imagine someone saying, hey, if you go home and don't like it, then you can just donate it. You know, this one's pretty much exactly like the thing you already have at home, but it's just newer. You've earned it. You deserve it. You don't have to respond with love because you'll have another opportunity. What kind of sales pitch is that? It's the kind of thing we tell ourselves over and over. That we make emotional decisions that we then backfill on logic. And we even tell this to each other and to ourselves because we aren't actually fluent in the way of Jesus. What happens then is we do harm. And here's the good news, though, is the harm we do by being gospel flippant instead of gospel fluent, by not admitting our unbelief, it's not irreparable. It can be repaired. When we get step one right, going to Jesus. The father went to Jesus. And then after his statement, Jesus casts out the demon. And in doing so, the demon attempts to destroy the boy. Your unbelief will not go quietly. Evil will not go silently. And what's also might be difficult to understand is sometimes when Jesus intervenes, it might seemingly make things worse than better because you see that the, the demon throws the boy down. But even the cutting out of cancer begins with an incision. The scene then changes. And Jesus then retreats to his disciples after the miracle's been done. And they ask Jesus, why couldn't we drive out the demon? Their question betrays a sense of confidence in their own strengths and abilities. It suggests a spirit of pride rooted in past accomplishments that they believe they should have been sufficient for this encounter. They are saying we did it before and we will do it again, but it didn't work this time. Why? See, failure leads them to question themselves. And it's actually a good thing. Introspection is a healthy spiritual discipline when it causes us to examine our weaknesses and confront our limitations. To confront the areas of our life where we have not fully trusted Jesus. And presumptuous self-sufficiency may be viewed as a great strength by the world, but it is a deadly, it's deadly to our spiritual lives. The disciples failed big time. It was public, it brought ridicule, it cast doubt on the master and his mission, and filled them with self-doubt. But on our way to fluency, failure is part of the process. And we rob ourselves of gospel fluency when we attempt to eliminate the potential for failure, when we settle for perfection instead of striving for progress. True progress always begins with prayer. Jesus is not saying some demon exorcisms require prayer, but others do not. He is saying that whenever we take to the spiritual battlefield, whenever we try to live our lives every single day, if we go on our own strength, pride, and self-sufficiency, we have lost the battle before it begins. See, faith bridges the gap between the divine power and our human weakness. And that faith is experienced and exercised through prayer. That conversation with God before, during, and after an action 
helps us depend not on ourselves, but on God. And it also allows us to speak into the things that we see into the lives of others, not from our own perspectives, but from the perspective of Jesus. See, a life of, of true living is a life of faith in Jesus, a life of believing in Jesus and the everyday stuff of life. Speaking the truths about Jesus, we will grow up together in every way with Christ and into Christ, saying, I do believe you can work. Help my unbelief. Help my action. God dependence brings God deliverance. Let us not revert to our default, to our native language of sin and selfishness. Truly allow collectively our God dependence together to bring good news in Jesus' name in our life and the lives of others. This is why we talk about the Remember Who You Are series. This is why each week we say, hey, you should you should fill out a gin card and, and fill out a prayer request. And I want to encourage you, if you've never done that before, start that today because God dependence brings God deliverance and it always starts with prayer. It starts right where you are in a seemingly moment where it's like, God, where are you? We're seemingly immobile. We can't necessarily go places or be with people or do all these things. That's That's what it seems like. But God, deliverance starts on your street because you're on your street. You have the potential to pray right where you are. The next wave of God working begins in your neighborhood. And you begin that wave of God's working with prayer. And know that when you want a breakthrough, when you want God to to bring deliverance, you're not alone. Together, collectively we can go to God in prayer and we can speak the gospel truth to each other we can speak the gospel truth to the different situations in our lives that you're not your past fears and your and your past failures that you're not who someone else says you are you are who Jesus says you are fully loved and accepted that you don't have to be defined by past fear or failure, but that fear and failure can actually make you better because then you've learned to not depend on your own strength, but you learn to depend on God. The disciples have been tempted to believe that the gift they had received from Jesus was in their control and could be exercised at their disposal. And we fall into this pitfall in our parenting, and our relationships with our spouses, with how we view work, with how we we view the world around us. And this was a subtle form of unbelief for the disciples, and it's a subtle form of unbelief for us, for it encourages us to trust in ourselves rather than in God when we believe that it's within our control, and it must be in our control. And the disciples and us had to learn that their previous success in expelling demons We have to learn that our our previous success and seeing God work must be asked for on each occasion and radical reliance upon his ability alone, not our own self-sufficiency. See, when faith confronts the demonic, God's power is its sole assurance. This is the faith that experiences the miracle of deliverance. When you put spirit over self in your daily decisions, when you check your motives, when you grow better because of your failures and your flaws and not bitter, you begin to see God work. 
and God's power show up. And we want to see God's power show up in our world and in our lives. Because God's power showing up brings healing and rescue and true transformation. God dependence brings God deliverance. It starts with prayer.